Hello, and welcome to the LifeWorks Podcast, where we share lessons learned from the trenches of life and business to help you achieve more, live more, and be more. I am your host, Mark Botros. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the LifeWorks Podcast. Joining me today is longtime friend and colleague, Dr. Maricela Martinez-Cola an assistant professor of sociology at Utah State University. Her areas of research include race, ethnicity, and culture. She's the author of soon-to-be-published The Bricks Before Brown, which is a study of race, class, and gender across three school desegregation cases involving Chinese, Mexican, and Native American plaintiffs, which took place before Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. Dr. Maricela Martinez-Cola, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Mark. I appreciate that. So let's, let's jump right into it here. Tell us, about, tell us about your book. Tell us about what led you uh, down this path and how relevant your work, not just in your book, but, but in your broader research, how relevant that is to what's happening in the world today. Absolutely. Um, again, thank you for letting, having me on. And I'm really happy to be able to talk about um, my book project. Right now, it's, it's under review at uh, two academic publishers. Uh, so fingers crossed. I hope that I'll get a contract soon. Um, but it, it was my dissertation research, my dissertation project. Um, and... To give a little bit of context, uh, this PhD is my second career. Um, before that, uh, I, I'm a, the first in my family to go to college, so I'm classic first-gener. Um, so I went to the University of Michigan, uh, and I, I majored in African-American African Studies. Um, and then, like every good first-gener, you either go to business school, engineering, medical school, or law, right? Right, right. Uh, I stink at math and science, so that knocked three out right away. There's no <laughs> way. Right, yeah. But I could argue well, so I went to law school. Um, but again, I didn't really understand fundamentally what lawyers did. So when I, I while I loved the study of law, I didn't like the practice of it. Um, and so after a year, uh, I ended up interviewing and I received a position at Davenport University, sort of as head of their diversity affairs, right? Um, and I think sort of it all kind of prepared me for that life and that moment. And the way that I ran the offices that I, for about 10 years, I worked in multicultural affairs, sort of on the administrative side of the university apps, right? right. And the way that I ran the office was, I, I called it rigorous inclusivity, right? Nice. Where I- I like that. Yeah, thank you. Like where I just looked around the table and I said, who's missing from this conversation? Um, so that it wasn't sort of, um, you know, you hate to use a, a violent analogy, but it wasn't sort of a rifle approach to things. It was a buckshot approach. <laughs> right. <laughs> to try right. to sort of, you know, uh, uh, reach as many people as possible and try to bring as many people as possible together when it, to the table when it made sense, right? Yeah. So I say that because I always would research things particularly from the, from the four larger, largest sort of uh, racial populations. So, you know, um, when I looked at beauty, for example, when we were going to talk about beauty, I looked at issues of beauty in 
African-American communities, in Latinx communities, in Asian-American communities, and in Native American communities. And nice. the differences were amazing, but the similarities were even more, for to me, more so. Um, and so kind of years of doing things like that, that's the way I just sort of developed the way I thought. And I could not just do one thing. Yeah. Um, so when I went to, uh, to get my PhD, I had already knew what I was going to study because I had this folder that I collected all this information that I learned. And it was in a manila folder that said I wrote PhD on it. And um, I was looking at school desegregation, right, which combines, you know, which uses my legal knowledge. Um, and as I was uh, researching it, I also learned about Mendez v. Westminster, which is a Mexican-American case that happened in 1947, before mm -hmm. Brown. Um, and so I said, I wonder if there's the equivalent of those cases in Asian American and Native American communities, because that's kind of how the law works. The law works, yeah, it, it counts for us too, and you have to sort of do that. Um, and so then I found the Chinese American and Native American cases, and then wow. kind of kept going down that road. Um, and the, so the book looks at those three cases in particular, and they're all based out of California. Um, and I just kind of look at them side by side. Um, and it, from 1885, which is a Chinese American case, Tate versus Hurley, to 1924, which is a Native American case, Piper v. Big Pine, mm -hmm. to Mendez v. Westminster in 47, and Brown in 54, the similarities across the cases were remarkable. Um, and so, yeah, so I just end the differences with how they dealt with race and uh, in the law was really, really fascinating to me as well. And so, yeah, I just, I wanted to be able to, one, tell a story that a lot of people didn't know about. They, they right. don't realize that those cases even existed. Right, um, right. Yeah, and I wanted to be able to tell sort of a more inclusive narrative of the civil rights movement. Yeah, right, you right. Know, in, in all its, you know, in its, in its sort of ugliness and beauty, you know, because the, the cases involving non-black plaintiffs are not, you know, necessarily pro-black. Right. There's some there were some really sort of uh, in, a lot of instances of anti-blackness in those communities. And I felt like we needed to talk about that, too. Um, right. And not just sort of paint this rosy kumbaya. It's a small world after all. Kind of thing. Right. As much of the story as I could. <laughs> so yeah, right. it's a long explanation, but that's ultimately kind of where the genesis of the book came from. And, and what I think what's what's stunning about that is the amount of time and the number of cases that it took to get to Brown uh, in 1954. I mean, we're talking, what, eight, you, you said, well over, I mean, from, 18, from late 1800s. So this mm -hmm. is in excess of 50 years, you know, to get this kind of case heard before the Supreme Court. That's, that's yeah. absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, almost as soon as the school, as school started, uh, there was, they were, um, segregation started happening almost immediately. And, it's sad because that's not why the school system was created. It was actually created in the spirit of unity. Um, but uh, almost immediately, and so the, one of the first cases is in 1848 in Massachusetts. Wow, so look at that. You look at it's it, it's almost years. you know, 100 years, almost 100 yeah. years um, of that battle. And it, it was with a young girl in Boston, Massachusetts named Sarah Roberts. And so I love pointing out that the struggle kind of began with a little girl and ended with a little girl. You know, and so 
<laughs> well, anyway. How beautiful, how beautiful that is, right? <laughs> yeah. So, I, do, I love the story. Yeah, so how is your work, uh, not just in this, not, in, not just in this book, but also your broader research, how is it relevant to what's happening today? There's so much social unrest. I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're looking at, you know, riots and looting and protests in the backdrop of, of a pandemic environment. Tell us about your, your work and how it's relevant to, uh, to what's happening today. I think, you know, I, I the, the work that I do is, is based on this idea of understanding racial inequality in the United States, right? Um, and one of the reasons why I like to do a comparative approach is to be able to um, validate the experiences, particularly of African-Americans through right. Black people in the United States, right? Right, right. Because it's very easy and it's often been argued, oh, they're just complaining. They just, you know, do this, that, or the other. But in my courses, when I teach, you know, um, I, I'll uh, start, you know, with, with a sort of the, the kind of the black and white binary that everybody understands, right? Right, right. Um, and that gets critiqued a lot. But then when I show them, guess what? These sorts of things also happen in Latinx communities, in you know Asian, you know Asian Americans, and um, you know uh, Indigenous Native Americans. When they start to see that it starts to happen across the board, right? Then you have to start to ask the question: What is the common denominator, right? And it shows how you know efficient the efficacy really of white supremacy. That it's able to course through all those communities in a variety of different ways, not in the same way. It's, there's not an equal sign between the experiences of these populations in no way. Wow. Um, there's definitely a hierarchy here, a racial hierarchy in the United States. Um, but the fact that it appears, you know, when you see if a, if a disease appears in one population, then there's something going on in that one population that you need to sort of look at. But when it starts to rear its ugly head, in particular populations, and it, it's going, you know, regardless of geography, regardless of wealth, regardless, then you need to start asking a different question. So, yeah. So, can you give us a historical, contextual perspective on what led up to George Floyd, that, that's, that situation? Um, you know, first, this, this, this situation really is um, so interesting. We used the phrase unprecedented to describe a pandemic, and now it's being used to kind of describe the protest, right? Um, and what's happening is that uh, people are beginning to really believe that this isn't just something that's happening to, quote unquote, bad people, you know? Right. Um, and this is, they're starting to understand this is something that's deeply, deeply rooted all the way from the times of slavery. You know, um, black bodies and, and black people have been policed incessantly, right? Wow. Um, from slave wow. patrols that would go and capture runaway slaves yeah. uh, for plantations, um, you know, and punish runaway slaves. Uh, that is a, you know, so from the very beginning, um, they were over policed, right? Mm. Um, and then after slavery, um, you had sort of this kind of 
brief moment of maybe things are going to get a little bit better, but then you get the creation of Jim Crow laws, right? And then these other laws, these sort of black laws that ended up, um, again, policing um, black people's behavior in the United States, right? And so, you know, there were laws against loitering. There were laws against, you know, just things that could be easily, um, you know, sort of prosecuted in a sense. And so in the, there's a really great book called The New Jim Crow and a wonderful documentary called the 13th Amendment. Mm -hmm. And what it talks about is the 13th Amendment abolished slavery except for prison populations, right? And so shortly after Jim Crow, right, you begin to now, instead of enslaving African-Americans, you can just incarcerate them and you get the same thing, basically. Yeah, yeah. and so that occurs throughout um, from the end of slavery till 1965, um, where theoretically things are supposed to be equal, right? (laughs) Right, right. Um, Yeah, you know, and so you've got this, these years of a built up system in place um, where uh, African Americans are just monitored almost mm-hmm. and, and, and painted to be criminalized, you know, in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. And then you look at the, the movement like the civil rights movement and, you know, people have seen those recordings, they've seen those photographs of police officers right you know, beating down peaceful protests german shepherds attacking their dogs your water hoses um you know and all throughout time uh police were at the center of a tremendous amount of violence that happened against black communities yeah uh, so the lynching is a really big um part of that you know uh these vigilantes would be able to go and get african-americans out of prison you know or out of the jail that they wherever they were arrested Mm-hmm. and drag them out um, and the police stood by or the police sanctioned it or the police participated in it um, wow. as members of the KKK. Uh, wow. So yeah, it's just, there's a really, it's a really, uh, um, ugly is an understatement. You know, it's mm-hmm. a history that when you understand it, you can explain why there's a deep, deep distrust of uh, police officers in, in particularly in black and brown communities, but the focus here is mostly, mostly in black communities. Yeah. Um, you know, the serve and protect was not, you know, that was never a motto that um, African-Americans were necessarily familiar with, right? Um, right. It's to sort of, um, you know, patrol and keep down was, you know, the, it was a different motto for them. Um, and so, yeah, I could keep going, look at the drug war and the right. over-incarceration of African-Americans for that. And so now you have, you know, all these uh, black men and women who are sitting in prison for, you know, because of the three strike rule that Clinton created uh, for small offenses and, and right. for particularly for like, let's say marijuana. But now you have people in California and Colorado profiting, you know, off of being able to sell marijuana and they're still sitting in prison serving right. their time for a crime that is no longer a crime anymore. Right, right. And, and why do you, why do you suppose that the African-American population in particular is singled out? Is it because of this long-term culture that's been in place, this long-term policing? Yeah, absolutely. Drug rates um, happen at approximately the same rate within black and white populations. So it's not the idea that, you know, black people commit more crime. It's that they're being policed more. 
so they get caught mm. more. You know, when I'm when I teach at universities, you know, it's really funny because I when I was at Emory University, we have this thing called fraternity row, right? Yeah, sure. And I, sure. Said, and I, I would ask them, and of course, this is a very wealthy, affluent, predominantly white institution. Yeah. You know, and in my class, I would say, let me ask you this question: If the police officers were to go down fraternity row, let's say on a Saturday night, how many arrests do you think they would make that are related to drugs? And the you know class just started kind of laughing, right? Because they're like, oh my goodness, you know, they don't even have to wait till you know till Saturday right, night. Right, right. <laughs> you find it. You know, right, just, right. It's a culture that's there, you know. Sure. And then I said, well, if they don't, if they know. And everyone knows what's happening on that right. fraternity row. Why aren't they going? I mean, it's it's low hanging fruit, right? And that's a really awesome conversation to have with students because they start to realize when you have resources, yeah. you can get out of things much better, much faster. Right. You know, so their parent, who's a CEO of whatever, has the resources to pay for an attorney to make this go away. Sure. Right. Whereas in, um, in a lot of black news, that's not something that exists. And it's, you wish justice was blind, but it's really who can pay the better price um, that end up sort of getting out of it. Um, yeah. Another example is uh, the opioid epidemic, right? Right, right. Um, years ago, there was the uh, crack epidemic, right, mm -hmm. that happened. And what happened in that case it was a criminal matter. And so people right. were getting particularly, and it really affected um, poor black communities. And so African-Americans, again, were being arrested at, you know, outrageous rates when what they needed were the services to help, you know, with addiction, right? Yeah. To help with, you know, being able to, to find jobs. And what are they, so it's a, it was a criminal matter then. But right now you have an opioid epidemic which is affecting largely rural white populations, right? And mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a health crisis is what it's shaped as, right? Wow. And, you know, we don't see that the incarceration rates are not happening as much. Instead, you right. have people, well, poor towns who are investing huge amounts of money in this thing called Narcan that revives people who have overdosed on opioids, right? Yeah. You know, so it's the idea of saving lives at all cost possible. And then... They need help, and so those go to drug courts to try to beat this addiction. Yeah. Um, so I think that uh, when you compare and contrast how one population gets treated over another, then that's kind of where you know where I think you really have to start looking at it a little bit, a little more critically. Yeah. So as we look at what's what's happened recently. The death of George Floyd. Obviously, mm -hmm. you know he's not the first African American man to uh, to die at the hands of police, even on even on television, right? Um, what what's the significance of this moment? Why is it that his particular death has set set off not just a nationwide outcry, but a global outcry? What's what's the significance of this moment, this particular death? What what is it? Yeah. I've been reflecting and thinking about that. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, also, I'm a scholar of social movements, mm. is, is what this is called, kind of what's Naturally. happening, right? Yeah. Where, where a collective gets together and says, something is wrong and we need to point this out, right? Right, right. Um, and so I've been thinking, what, what makes George Floyd and 
you know, um, Maud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor different than Tamir Rice and Eric Garner and Sandra Bland? What makes them, what makes this circumstances different? Because they were, of course, you know, video, there was, you know, a lot of the same things. And honestly, I think it's time. You know, what's happening is that we're in a pandemic where uh, young people are out of school, largely, you know, out of school. Um, and you have uh, a massive unemployment rate. So you've got a lot of people who don't necessarily have to report to work. And this is across the board. Right. 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 So they can protest on the weekend, but they can't protest, you know, nine to five on Monday through Friday. Right. Now they got <laughs> right. all week. Right. 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 Able to kind of see this thing through. Um, and it's time in the sense that people have time to, to think about it, to reflect. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. Because you're, you're sitting at home and you're not, you know, working on the next project. Um, you're beginning to see that um, there's something bigger going on here and you're beginning to ask more questions celebrities they're not recording you know they're not doing recordings they're not making films so they have much more time on their instagrams and you know twitter feeds and you know to to sort of influence um people and so they're able to kind of spend more time on that um front as well (laughs) um and the other aspect of time is people witnessed a murder when they saw george floyd It, it was a straight up murder Everything else, uh, all the other sort of videos were sort of parsed down to a few seconds. Sure. So it's really easy to say, oh, that happened so quickly. You know, they didn't expect that to happen or the police officers, blah, blah, blah. Here, it was nearly nine minutes of watching a man beg for his life. Right. Of watching people standing around begging the officer to get off of his neck. Right. And the officer just very coldly and even glibly remaining, you know, in that position. Right. Um, so I would, I would, I really believe that the big difference is time. People have time now yeah. to really think about this. Yeah. What about the, I think the, pro, what about the protests but even beyond the protests, what what about the the violence and the looting and the 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 unrest? Like, what what has so it's one thing to protest, right? It, it, and 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 I think that's that's absolutely sanctioned, right? By you know by our by the First Amendment. Um, yes. The but what about the violence, the riots, the looting? You know where where does that come from? Is it just opportunistic, or is it is it a is it a justified action? Is it a justified response to to what has happened? I'm curious to know your thoughts about this. And, and the the protests are one thing, but I think what's come out of the protests, the the, the these this other this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about that. What what do you think is you know, the source of that, is it justified? You know, what does it accomplish? You know, the, all, all those things. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think that it's, you know, I've always been, uh, whenever sort of 
because you know these riots, of course, are right riots slash revolutions, whatever you want to call them, happened before, right? Yeah, yeah. And there's usually some sort of element of you know um, violence and fires burning down buildings and things sure. like that. Um, and this one is particularly uh, there's a lot of it going on. Right. And I just I've never been a believer that it was necessarily the organizers of the protests that were doing it. You know, I think that there are individuals who are coming there that, yeah, see an opportunity to be able to take advantage of sort of what's going on. Right. Um, and I think also there are a lot of um, people that are, that are coming out to protest that have never really been taught, in a sense, how to protest. And so, um, right. you know, and, and I will say, right. <laughs> right. You know, I will say that they sort of, kind of lost their minds a little, you know, and just have yeah. gone crazy, you know, gone nuts, you know. And yeah. so they're spray painting and they're knocking out windows. And it's remarkable because there's all these videos on Twitter and Instagram of individuals, of, of people, young people who are white, young white people right. who are, you know, spray painting. And there's this, you know, uh, sort of, you know, uh, guy dressed in black with a black umbrella. It's a white man who was going around and breaking the windows of an auto zone. And there's all these people, you know, saying, what are you doing? Like protesters that are telling them, stop, you know, right. you need to stop doing that. Um, and, you know, the person's like, we, you know, they're, they're talking about how they're, this is their way of protesting. And, and the, you know, the person that was recording said, they're not going to blame you. They're going to blame us, right. you know, for this. Right. Um, right. You know, I was, you know, in Salt Lake City, you know, I live in, you know, Utah. In Salt Lake City, there was a, an overturned car. You know, and this white woman walks up onto the car. Yeah. And yeah. Proceeds to show her distrust or distaste or hatred or whatever for the police by relieving herself. Right. Car, right. 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 And they're like, uh, yeah, that's not what this is. Uh, you know, that I just I, I think it's it's interesting because you're like, well, why why would she do like what is that? You know. Right. <laughs> Where in the book are you taught? Yeah, go in. You know. Do number two on a police car, that really shows how much, you know, that, and so I really think there's kind of this, you know, split um, between people who truly don't know and understand what a peaceful protest is, um, and they just don't know what to do with their anger, right? Whereas people of color have experienced this anger and frustration for years. Yeah. So it's not something that, and, and so yes, if there are people of color, and when there are people of color who also participate in the looting, and also participate in the violence. You know, there, that I believe comes from a form of anger and frustration and, and just, you know, tired of being tired. Fannie Lou Hamer said that at, you know, yeah. the um, Democratic National Convention. And, and I think that it's amazing because people are like, why are they burning down their own neighborhoods? And, you know, right. Right. I have to make the point that that's not their neighborhood. This isn't theirs, you know, I, they, you know, People of color, generally speaking, we don't own things. We rent, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so this isn't their neighborhood. This is a neighborhood that, you know, they've sort of been shuttled into for years, um, even in you know, the home ownership rates among people of color. Um, so it's not like literally owned necessarily, although that's a part of it as well. But it's about this idea that this is not my, this is not my community necessarily. Um, and so I just, I think that, uh, the looting, you know, the looting is something when, when people sort of criticize it, I don't think they fundamentally understand what drives it mm -hmm. because 
at least there's a, something you can kind of point to, right? Right. In the meantime, there's a really great article, I think it was in the New Yorker, that said, When White People Riot. And it just shows all these photographs. <laughs> right. People, like there's one about a Huntington Beach after a surf competition, just fires and, you know, buildings just collapsed. In Denver 2014, they, they rioted because their football team lost. And in San Francisco 2012, they won, they rioted because their baseball team won. Right. You know, um, in Vancouver, their hockey team lost, you know, so you see after all these major sports events, right? Sure. Sure. You know, people losing their mind, you know, and largely white populations <laughs> losing their mind, right? Right, right. And, but people aren't like, and, and they, they're upset about that, right? But the way that it's written about is that they just got a little overzealous. Right. You know, they're just a yeah. little too enthusiastic about what they're doing, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and so I just think that the way it's framed, we need to step back and say, okay, why can one group do it and it makes complete sense to people and another group does it and they're all of a sudden confused? Right, right. So what is white privilege? That's a biggie. <laughs> white privilege is um, sort of these unearned benefits that, um, people receive based on the color of their skin, right? The reason why I say people is because uh, there are many people of color who are very light-skinned or who pass for white, who also benefit from that sort of privilege as well. And so what it means is that um, it can be anything from the really big things, and it's mostly the, the quote-unquote sort of small everyday thing, right? So a person that, um, has white privilege, doesn't have to worry about when, you know, when they move into a, a new neighborhood, they're more than likely going to see people who look like them, right? So they're not going to worry about, oh, well, this community accept me, right? Right. When they walk into a store, they're pretty much assured that they're not going to be followed, you know, uh, around the store to see, are you stealing something, right? Yeah. Uh, when they get pulled over by the police, even, you know, your first thought isn't, oh my gosh, they're going to kill me. Right. And, and, you know, for the cops, as much as they, you know, the cop show, one of the things that I've noticed is, you know, there's this one show where uh, oh, this white man was just like yelling at this police officer, calling him everything. But, you know, his, his you know, God given name. Every right. Planet, right. You know? um, and the police officer stayed very calm, didn't, you know, sort of do anything. And I was like, that's white privilege. You know, because if a black or brown person or a person of color were to do that, they would be dragged out of that car so quickly, right? right. Um, and so I think that there's some things that, you know, it's, there's a benefit of the doubt that's given because um, you are a part of the majority population and that majority population sort of wrote the rules. And we can't possibly think that you would necessarily break them, right? Mm -hmm. White privilege is, you know, <clears throat> white meth addicts getting drug court and going to, you know, get help, where, whereas the, the jails are filled right now with um, black men and women who were, who succumbed to crack addiction. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's white privilege. Um, wow. Yeah. What can people uh, who are not of color, I'll say white people, okay? Mm -hmm. What can they do to genuinely, honestly, and earnestly 
show support for those, for, for, for people of color? Yeah. Um, there's so many things that they can do. It's really interesting because I was talking to a student and I was uh, telling them that I've developed two answers for people. Mm. There's some people that, I, that will ask, what can I do? And um, I think that they sort of want something immediate to, to make them feel less bad about a situation. Sure. Um, and so I'll just recommend one book. You know, I'll say, you, you can read White Fragility. You can read How to, you know, how to Be Anti-Racist. You know, I'll just give one book. You read that. Right. Um, and I think it makes them feel like, okay, I did my part, right? Right. Um, right. The ones that I know are serious are the ones that are really going to take the time to learn. Mm. And then I give them this other resource that, um, that has much more information on their documentaries, videos, uh, interviews, things to really help them understand the history behind this, um, to, help them, to help them understand that uh, African-Americans you know, in the United States have been at war in a sense, right? Yeah. Um, and what's happening is that, and it's happened right under our noses, yeah. and people don't recognize it as that. And white people are finally starting to see there's a lot of casualties that are coming out of this. Yeah, right? yeah. But they're joining it now. African-Americans have been fighting it for years. So they're not shocked when these things happen anymore. But right. white people come into the battle, you know, right at sort of one of the, the kind of the, the high points, and they're just completely and utterly shocked yeah. because much of their white privilege has blind them. They don't have to see it. You right. know, they don't have to look at it. And right. so when they finally do, it's very jarring, you know. Um, and so I think that there's some people that want to feel better now, and then there's other people that really want to make a change and understand that that change starts with them. So I, you know, there's, there's a, I think you have to educate yourself and you have to put in the time. You know, people of color have had to learn how to navigate in a white world. Mm. We've been taught our entire lives how to do it, right? Right. Um, white people have not been taught those skills, right? They don't know how to, how to adjust themselves accordingly because it is that world. It is their world in a sense. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. How does a person, is it enough, is it enough for a person to have like, you know, a few black friends, a few Latin friends, a couple of Asian friends and get along well? Like, how does a person know if they are, to, to use a, a popular phrase, woke? You know, if they're yeah. truly, truly enlightened, if they are truly not a racist, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how do they know that? How do they know that for themselves? Yeah. It's a, it's a great question. Um, so the goal is to, the goal is not to not be racist anymore. Right. That's not the goal, right? Mm -hmm. The goal is to be proactive against racism. So this is where the phrase anti-racist comes about, mm -hmm. you know. Um, it's saying there's something going on here and I need to make a contribution. Not just, you know, there's something going on here. No, I see it. Thank you for showing me. Right. You know, right. <laughs> it's like there's something that needs to change and they, they're an active part of that change. Um, and as I said, it begins with them. So, you know, 
if they had, if it were the case that a lot of white people had those Latinx friends and Asian friends and black friends, then I think that would actually help a bit. But what ends up happening is they have that one black friend Mm. or they have that one Latino friend. Like I joke around and I tell people, I am certain I'm the one Latina friend to like about 50 people. So (laughs) I have this Latina friend, you know, I'm positive they're talking about me, right? Um, And so I think that it's really fundamentally looking at, you know, how am I raising my children? Not this idea about being colorblind. Am I teaching them to be color brave? You know, um, how, who are the people that sit around my table? You know, what are the books that I'm reading? What are the TV shows that I'm watching? What are the messages that my kids are getting from their television shows? You know, um, you look at uh, something even as popular as the Avengers, right? That's out there. For the longest time, you had Captain America and, you know, Tony Stark and Disney, I don't think were prepared for the Black Panther and how popular a bunch of little white kids going Wakanda forever. They weren't, you know, they weren't expecting that, right? Um, right. And so yeah. I, I just, I don't think they realize how, um, you know, it's, it's this idea of what is being represented as good and pure and, and con- contributory to this world. Right. Is that, is that the, you know, the world I want my, my child to live in? Um, and then, you know, it's at school saying, you know, it's more than just saying, you know, um, you need to ask them, what are your, your, your punitive policies here? You know, what are the statistics when it comes to who's getting punished more? You know, right. uh, black students or white students? You know, and, and I could tell you, it's black students, you know, um, because it, the over-policing starts in school. Yeah. You know, um, and, you know, have your teachers received anti-violence training? You know, uh, mm. asking those more change-worthy questions. The issue is it takes time to get to that point, right? Right. When right. you woke, it meant you were asleep. So you missed a lot, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when you wake up, there's a little bit of work you have to do. And, and once you kind of clear the webs out of your head, you know, it, then it's time for action. So it's not just about waking up. It's about waking up and doing something. Yeah. How do you think the media has handled all of this? It's really, um, you know, you know the phrase, if it bleeds, it leads, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. F- famous, famous, yeah. Media. Very famous line about what makes the newspaper. Right. Right. Um, and I think that when it comes to sort of the looting, the media purposely focused on those photo, those pictures, those images. They don't, you know, they don't see the videos that, you know, sort of, you know, uh, amateur reporters have been, you know, recording on Twitter. You know, they right. don't they don't release them. Um, that say, you know what, we need to question who's really behind, you know, the, these matters. Um, but I think they're starting to kind of understand because. Um, they have been attacked, the media has been attacked more in this protest than I've ever seen. Uh, you know, the, there was a, a CNN reporter who was arrested on television. Uh, there was another one that was, you, you saw the police officer shooting rubber bullets, you know, at her. And you can hear her in the background just, you know, 
screaming in pain because she's getting hit by it was it was shocking to her because she's right. part of the media it's a protected place you're not supposed to touch them you know right. and so i think that they're kind of getting a little taste about what's you know happening um but i, I the media is drawn to sensationalism right um and they'll like you know uh, they like what looks pretty mm. right and so they'll have those shows of like police officers kneeling or you know uh, in, in solidarity with, with right. people they like the one shot approach like let's try to capture this moment and you know rather than really being much more comprehensive about it and showing the good bad and the ugly right. um, and so i think that um the media can do better i mean all of us can do better right sure. um but i think that it's such a powerful medium they should be doing better it's their responsibility to do better um and I think that uh, you have to stop thinking and, oh, this is a good story. And to know this is something that's really going to help educate people. Right. You know, this is, right. You know, this, this is a, a, the right story, so to speak, you know. Um, yeah. So, I, you know, I, 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 it's, good. it's both good and bad, right? Um, and, I, I, and I think um, one of the other things that I'm, that I'm struggling with right now, too, is, um, how many times the, all these videos are now coming out, right? Because police officers are realizing they're getting, you know, initially I just really don't think they care. I don't know, but you know, video after video after video of all this violence, you know, right. um, I don't know how, and, and they're, they're saying, you know, beware, this is a disturbing video, right? Um, I believe that secondary and tertiary trauma is real, mm. you know, and, and what the, what, people experience with the George Floyd death, the George, George Floyd death was, is a, a collective trauma, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think that um, no. there has to be more responsibility. You have to talk, if you're gonna show these things, you need to be able to talk about the mental health consequences of them as well. Right. You know, um, so I just think it can be a lot more sort of responsible and educational, not sensationalist. Right, know? right. Well, and, and to be honest, it's not, it's not good for business for them to be balanced, right? They're not <laughs> in the business of, of, of reporting peace and love and harmony. Like that's, it's actually bad for business. It doesn't get people watching, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, they, it's, <laughs> it's not in their best, it, strangely, it's not in their best interest to, to, to be fair or right or, or just in their reporting. Just, just in my own personal observation. But so, so hopefully the media will take the message, right? But if they don't, what can we do as consumers of media to filter, the, you know, to filter what we're seeing? You know, how do we view the media? Because ultimately, it, I feel it, it's, a, it's, a personal, it's a personal choice. We control what, what comes inside and how we process that. How should we be taking the media in? Absolutely. Um, that's a great question. And it's a good instinct about the idea that it's not good for business. That's absolutely 100% true. I agree with you on that. Um, I think that we need to supplement it with, we need to supplement sort of this visual media with, I, I believe, more print. You know, that it's the print media that generally has a bit more information yeah. that you're able to parse through and able to learn. They're the ones that are quoting studies. And they're the ones that are interviewing experts and they're the ones that are, you, you get what I'm saying? And so 
you know, you, you find the ones that make the, the sense to you. New York Times is, is outstanding. They do a really great job of reporting. And when they mess up, they, tell, they say they mess up. Um, with the understanding that, you know, um, you know there's, uh, there's Vox News and, and uh, sometimes BuzzFeed has some really interesting things that I think are happening more in the social media sort of internet realm um, that's uh, more telling. You know, that actually, you know, there are people that are learning more from those, you know, those clicks, right. you know, those, those links than they are from TV. There, there's people that are learning more from John Oliver and Trevor right. Noah right, right. than they are from, you know, because they're able to go a little deeper into an issue, into a topic that the media can't capture in a five minute segment. Right, right. So, if you were to sit down with our national leaders and, to, and give them advice on things that they should focus on going forward, what, what, what advice would you give them? Um, you mean like our national leaders right now? Right now, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If they were open um, and they were willing to listen, what would you say to them? Yeah. Um, I don't know how open our, our leadership <laughs> is exactly right now right. for that. So it's a little bit more difficult to, to imagine, but uh, to the change makers, to the change, the people who have the power to change. Right. Um, right. They need to understand that, that, that their influence and their power makes a difference. Right. Um, and that again, they have to ask the very basic question that I knew how to ask at a university when I was at a multicultural affairs, who's missing from the table? You know, if I'm going to create this law, if I'm going to, you know, you know, who, who, who do I need to have there sitting with me to help inform me about what's going on so that I can make the best possible decision out there. Um, and so I, this is, a, this is a policy that so many people have always had, you know, CEOs, know that you need to surround yourself with the people who understand the business That's in right. order to be successful. Absolutely. Right? That's a very clear lesson that is that's business 101. It is. Yet they don't do it when it comes to policy, right? They don't do it when it comes to implementing legal and substantive change, you know? Um, and so I think that that's why, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was so refreshing to have, you know, um, in Congress because she represented right. the people. You know, she came in with a completely different perspective and she is tearing it up. You know, she's asking the tough questions. She's, you know, saying you need to, uh, there's a whole reality out there that you, Mr. CEO, who has your golden parachute, you know, that you, Mr., you know, I've been in, you know, government for umpteen thousand years and have somehow become a millionaire. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, I've lost along the way. Right. Hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think the problem when you're going to serve the people and you become a millionaire while you're serving the people. I'm like, ah. hmm. anyway. uh, funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are you hoping that people generally will will take forward with them as a result of this entire experience? Um, several things, you know, on a personal level, just, you know, a commitment to, to personal change, but understanding the power that they, can, that they have in making institutional change, 
right? If, if you, if the person that is in office right now, because people don't understand the power of local politics, right? Um, if right. you're a local, right. you know, council person, if you're, I mean, you have, you have the power to vote them out. Yeah. You have the power to put in people there that are going to reflect your values. Um, just recently here in Logan, small town Logan, um, the city council or uh, the you know, leadership voted to go green. Um, wow. And they want to ask, basically ask the state officials, we want to go green. Um, we, are, we ended up, we were on the New York Times because we were number one on the spike in COVID cases. Wow. You don't want to be number one. Right, right. right. In this small area alone. Right. Because of a meat plant, right? There's a, a meat packing plant here. Um, and, you know, six to one, six people said, yeah, let's go green. This, that makes sense. Let's, you know, because they're tired of wearing masks and they want to go shopping. And they, you mm. know, and I, I sat there and I was like, you know, yeah, that, that's not who I want representing me. Right, you know, right. We need more people like the person who voted one person who stood up against all of that. Um, so I think that understanding not just your individual power to change, but also the power of, of your vote, of being able to get there and, and be active and, and really understand the issues that are happening. You know, in November, we're picking a president, but it's all these other elections along the way that are just as, if not more important to what's right. happening with you and your communities. Right, right. Um how do you intend to leave the world better than you found it? <laughs> you. Um, you know, I, so I, I love teaching yeah. about race and ethnicity. You know, I love trying to teach my students how to be color brave, to teach them that it's okay to talk about these things. That mm -hmm. It's good to talk about race and inequality. Um, because, uh, you know, my philosophy, and I, I say it a lot, and it came from a, from a quote, I, you know, I wish I could remember where I got it from, but I remember it just resonated with me. Um, and the individual said, we have to move from you or me, right? So it's either you or me, mm. one of us has to win. Right. To, uh, there's a united you and me, yeah. like we can do this together, you know, which is beautiful as well. But the real transformation happens when you move to you are me. When wow. your life, when my life is transformed by your life, mm. you know, when I recognize that when you hurt, I hurt. Mm. When you hunger, I hunger. Um, that's what I want to ultimately teach my students. That's, you know, I, and I have to do it for me to make sense of all this because it can be very disheartening. Um, I've realized that my... Uh, my space is in the classroom one person at a time. You know, um, yeah. I often tell people, have you ever seen that, you, that there's a movie, Shawshank Redemption? Right? Yeah, great movie. Yeah. And uh, the, it's a movie about Andy who was falsely accused and went to prison and he digs himself out of prison, right? Right, right. And with a little hammer, okay? And I tell people, we're all Andy Dufresne trying to, you know, chisel out of this massive institution that's been created, you know. Um, and, you know, you do it with your little bitty hammer with the understanding that because you have been in the 
institution, you're forever transformed, right? Andy was a different person coming out of that than he was going in, right? right? And so, you know, if that's how I feel. I feel like I'm Andy with my little hammer making my little tunnel. In this right, right, right. But if there's enough Andys, <laughs> right. if a bunch of people became Andys, that, you know, that, that building would collapse really quickly, right? But, you know, that's, that's where I see sort of my, I've had to see my mark. Um, and that I hope I make a mark. And my students have been so lovely during this time. I can't tell you how many emails I've received from the students who have shared that the class was transformative for them, that they are so glad they're able to understand what's going on today because of what they learned in the class and that they're able to have tough conversations with their family members that they didn't feel like they could have before, but now they know how to have them, you know? Um, and so that's, you know, to me, you know, you're, you're planting seeds. You don't quite know what it's going to grow into, but that's just all you can do. You know, so right. I, I hope that, that whatever my little part of what I've planted, you know, will uh, help to make the world in some way, you know, a better place. Hopefully that person will be able to know. I always tell my students, once you know better, you do better. Absolutely. Right? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna blame you for something you don't know, you know, um, that you're not familiar with. Um, but once you know, then you know, you can be held accountable for, right. for that. So, right. Yeah. And, and I, I think you've certainly scattered a lot of seed uh, in, <laughs> in the time that we've had today. And I think that's a beautiful way to end uh, our, our conversation. Where can people find you and connect with you online? Sure. Um, I uh, have a, a website. It's um, www.michicanaphd.com. Um, I call myself a Michicana because I'm a Chicana from Michigan. So that's kind of my, my <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Uh, yeah, right. at, at Twitter, I'm uh, at Michigana Forever. Yeah. Uh, and um, you know, yeah, and just in general, through the through the USC website, uh, people can contact me. Um, you know, I'm I'm more than happy to talk about um, issues. I've been doing that a lot. <laughs> right. Student. Right. Um, and I think for those, if I can, you know, mention one other thing, I I recently authored an article called. Uh, collectors, Nightlights, and Allies Online, White Mentors in the Academy. And um, there's a lot of people who are in positions of power who are mentoring a lot of young people of color, or people, not just young, but people of color who are out there. Right. Um, and I wrote this article because I don't think mentors realize what they're doing some of the time, mm -hmm. right? They're very well-meaning people, um, and, and they unintentionally can be maybe condescending, you know, or... And so I talked about these sort of three typologies of the kinds of mentors that get out there. Um, and people have found it very helpful. Um, you know, I've had uh, white readers write to me and say that it really made, you know, really made them think and it's helping them to understand their position in it all. And, and I've had people of color email me and say that it's very validating that, you know, I'm able to finally put words to their experience. Right, um, right. You know, to be able to say, oh my gosh, I, that's, that's what I can call that person now. That person was a collector because they just like, seem to like to collect, you know, <laughs> they have this sort of cadre, you know, of people who call it that they, you know, sort of collect. It's really, it's really interesting. But anyway, um, to be able to, you know, maybe read that, it's a small thing. Um, but if you're in a place where you're mentoring people, um, even in business, um, 
I wrote it for the academy, but it seems to be translating really well to other areas too. Mm -hmm. um, that's a, a small start, especially if you if you're responsible for helping to shape their trajectory in whatever world that that you happen to be a part of. So. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all that you shared today. It's been such a pleasure having you. And I have a feeling that I have a feeling that you're going to be pretty busy here in the near future <laughs> in, in, in a good way. So th yeah. thank you for sharing some of your wisdom, your experience and your knowledge with us. Um, and, uh, and I wish you all the best, you know, going forward in, in all of your research, your work, your publishing. Uh, and everything that you're pursuing. And I look forward to following you in the, in, in the future. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate this opportunity and um, we'll love to take any questions. And I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm, a, I'm a professor, I'm a teacher, that's what I do. So I hope that um, it, some of this has helped to, to maybe help people look at something a little bit differently. So thank you for the opportunity. To of course, my pleasure, my pleasure indeed, of course. <laughs> If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe or sign up for my free updates at my website at markabotros.com and you'll never miss a post or an episode. And if you think that someone will benefit from this, please share with them. Please comment on it in social media and or connect with me personally. I would love to hear from you.